0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Jeff Resnick on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, John Galsworthy and the Disabled Soldiers of the Great War. You have probably heard of John Galsworthy, although you don't remember where. I'm here to tell you that you have heard of him because he is the author of the Foresight Saga and you undoubtedly have seen some production of the Foresight <music> Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Jeff Resnick on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, John Galsworthy and the Disabled Soldiers of the Great War. You have probably heard of John Galsworthy, although you don't remember where. I'm here to tell you that you have heard of him because he is the author of the Foresight Saga, and you undoubtedly have seen some production of the Foresight Saga. One of the things you might not know about the author of the Foresight Saga, that is John Galsworthy, is that he was quite a humanitarian. He was extremely important in creating the modern infrastructure for the care of veterans who had returned from one or another wars. Galsworthy witnessed soldiers returning from the Great War, soldiers who had been maimed during their time at the front, and he understood that they were in need of help, that is, help to reintegrate into society, and he made it his cause. He raised a lot of money for these soldiers. He Helped to found hospitals for them and he wrote extensively about them and that really is what Jeff's book is about. I, I knew that Galsworthy was a great man but I didn't know how great he was until I read Jeff's really terrific book. I highly recommend it to you and without further ado here's the interview. Hi Jeff.
1: Hi Marshall, how are you?
0: I'm very well. You are in uh, Washington DC, is that correct? That's correct. Yep. And How is the weather there?
1: The weather is cool and rainy today, unfortunately. Well, it's
0: really. I used to live in Washington, D.C., and uh, the summers there I found very nice. I should tell our um, listeners that we're talking to Jeff Resnick today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, John Galsworthy and the Disabled Soldiers of the Great War. I have read the book, and I'm telling you it is extraordinarily interesting. Uh, for those of you who are interested in... Um, what might be called medical history and also the history of uh, warfare and the care for soldiers. This is a book that you'll want to read. Uh, one thing that I really like about it is that it includes some of Gaulsworthy's writings, and I would even say lesser-known writings, so... For fans of the uh, Foresight Saga and so on and so forth, this is, uh, again, a book that you will probably want to read. The book is of relevance today, given the fact that uh, we, that is the United States, is at war, and we might just discuss that a little bit during the interview. But, uh, Jeff, let me ask you to begin our conversation by telling us a few words about yourself.
1: Sure. Thanks, and thanks, Marshall, for having me on your great show. I'm, I'm a big fan, and I appreciate it very much. And appreciate your interest in the book. So, I was born in Rochester, New York, and I was raised there. And uh, attended the University of Rochester, uh, and then went on to uh, Emory University, where I uh, received my PhD in history from the history department there. Um, uh, my uh, I relocated to the D.C. area about a decade ago and have um, uh, been involved with the nonprofit sector here for several years, uh, while pursuing uh, historical research uh, in a variety of capacities. And uh, currently, I am the deputy chief of the History of Medicine Division at the National Library of Medicine. I should say that the book uh, uh, that I've written um, was written before I took this position. So. Um, um, just to to make that clear and uh um again appreciate being on on the show
0: yeah sure I just uh, always marvel at people that can have uh day jobs and write books <laughs> so <laughs> that, you you get uh, a big gold star on your notebook for me for that because it 's well, really quite an accomplishment
1: well thanks uh you know it partly it 's a function of um of moving beyond academia for several years, uh, outside academia, if you will, and uh, as I said, worked in the nonprofit sector, so I did wear those two hats, mm-hmm. and I'm very grateful that the, the nonprofit organizations that I did serve in, in an executive capacity allowed me that time to, mm-hmm. to pursue the historical research. Those mm-hmm. communities, uh, medical communities, were Particularly uh, um, interested in the work that I did, so yeah, it's a kind of a dual track, and mm-hmm. and uh, I had largely an administrative uh, uh, career in the nonprofit sector, so it was particularly difficult in that regard. Mm-hmm. So thanks for your observation. <laughs> yeah, in that respect. Absolutely, yeah, thanks.
0: <laughs> so tell me how you got interested in World War One.
1: So my interest in World War One um, is rooted you know, firmly in my. My childhood on the one hand, uh, I, you know, as I said, I grew up in Rochester and, uh, thanks uh, very much to my father who introduced me to history through the libraries and museums of upstate New York and Canada, uh, particularly Rochester, my hometown, Buffalo and Toronto. Uh, so I grew up with, with history being, very, being very much a center of my life, um, outings and such, uh, with my dad and my family generally. Um, and then, so I went on to the University of Rochester, as I mentioned, where I uh, took a few courses in modern British history, uh, one in particular from a gentleman named Stuart Weaver, who's still there at the U of R. And during, in that course, I, I read for the first time the vast amount of literature that came out of the War to End All Wars, uh, Sassoon, uh, Graves, um, Wilfred Owen, and, and the rest of the Oxbridge writers, and was really captivated by it, as most people are. And uh, really, that was a pivotal point for me to want to explore it in greater depth, which I went on to do at Emory. Uh, But rather than focus on the canon of wartime literature at Emory, I, I became interested in kind of those pockets of material uh, in the archives that that reveal other voices lesser known voices uh, in uh, that, that took part in various ways at the home front and on the war front in World War one and so that research revealed to me these voices uh, in hospitals and convalescent depots and such, and that really became the the core of my, my first book, which is called Healing the Nation, Soldiers and the Culture of Caregiving in Britain during the Great War. And uh, it was kind of a telescoping, really, of that very early interest in history all the way through the University of Rochester and, and culminating in uh, my doctoral work. And it continues now through through this book. So in a nutshell, that's, that's really it.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Well, let's begin by setting the scene just a little bit. Um, this is more or less a hypothesis on my part. Uh, so tell me if it's true i don 't think that people uh, in World War One were prepared for the return of many many, many horribly crippled soldiers they, they knew that war was violent, but World War I was more violent, and they also knew that most wounds on the battlefield of the nineteenth century were more or less fatal, largely right. due to sepsis but I think after the discovery of the germ theory of disease a lot right. of these guys survived and this created right. a problem does that sound right
1: right right so uh that's that's correct the there was knowledge and a memory distant uh somewhat of the American civil war but they way in which most people thought about waging the war to end all wars was how they did it in the 19th century, uh, really at the turn of the century. Um, And so that was really the expectation. But with the uh, war machine uh, being what it was, there was a a way in which these men, uh, those who did survive, were returned home and wounded for for life. And uh, so the expectations that this war be a lot like the 19th century, on the one hand, and then the uh, the lack of preparation, really that it be that it was as long as it was, and that it was as severe as it was, uh, due to the mes- mechanistic nature of the of the Western Front and other fronts, uh, combined to reveal a war that was. Um, um, uh, much much more than anyone had anticipated, so Galsworthy was uh, one of those people who was horrified by the war uh, as it as it settled in to, to be a reality in the uh, late summer and, and fall of nineteen fourteen uh, and he uh, and many others of his generation uh, younger generation particularly uh, were not uh, were not expecting what was going to unfold mm-hmm. and uh, that was really that that sets the stage for the the part the first part of the story that I tell in in this mm-hmm.
0: Before we go into Galsworthy himself, let me ask mm-hmm. you this. What sort of infrastructure to use a word I don't really like um, was there in Britain for the uh, taking care of retraining and reentry of wounded soldiers into civilian life? H- how did they care for people who had come back from, I don't know, the Sudan campaign or the Boer War or something? What did they do with them?
1: Well, the, the plans that were put in motion uh, in 1914 were largely based on those previous uh, arrangements. And in my first book, I, I talk a little bit about those precedents, if you will, to providing that infrastructure um, both the official military infrastructure and the voluntary aid programs that uh, were complements to the, the, the official infrastructure. Uh, so they they, they they didn't create it out of nowhere. Uh, as you well know and others well know, they, they worked according to what had been done before. And what had been done before was um, uh, largely uh, not very methodical, although there was an understanding of uh, lines of communication stretching back from the war front to the home front, whereby you'd have the uh, uh, the aid post, and then further back the uh, stationary hospital, and then um, the uh, uh, perhaps a hospital barge or uh, an ambulance uh, uh, train that could transport the the wounded further back uh, to the uh, hospitals. Um, uh, but way behind the lines, or perhaps uh, at home, and then uh, the convalescent stage, if they were if they survived uh, through illness and injury um, in those other uh, uh, spaces of care, if you will, uh, they would be transferred to uh, a convalescent um, space, which would either be an official convalescent uh, depot uh, or uh, a voluntary aid uh, detachment. Um, uh, convalescent facility run by the the British Red Cross and uh, the Order of Saint John. So that's that's the uh, generally the arrangement. Um, and in my first book, I, I talk about that structure and try to set the stage for a discussion of the experiences inside those uh, those institutional spaces that I, I described. Mm-hmm.
0: I, the reason I ask is mm-hmm. because. Most Americans, and I I probably think most people listening to this show, will have firmly fixed in their mind the institution of the Veterans Administration, the VA and VA hospitals that are scattered in almost, I don't know, I was going to say every community in the United States. But certainly every community of any size has a veterans hospital of some sort of VA hospital. Did they have anything of that nature?
1: Well, in some ways, yes. Um, The regional character of the VA today uh, mirrors somewhat the regional character of the voluntary aid uh, organizations that provided uh, a certain amount of care to uh, wounded veterans. So the British Red Cross and Order of St. John worked together during World War I in Britain and uh, uh, created uh, these convalescent homes, uh, a network of hospitals, if you will, um, during the war and for uh, several years thereafter. Um, But it was a a network uh, based on... um, Uh, kind of a loose administration, if you will. I mean, there are, there were central, uh, reporting structures and there's a a wonderful document about 900 pages that describes the efforts of the British Red Cross and Order of St. John, um, in, in all of these uh, communities across all the counties of of Britain, uh, so they did report up into some central structure um, but the, the that's about where it stops um, in other words there's no obviously direct line of historical development between today's VA and 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 what transpired in World War one, although again that general regional character is is reflective of the the fact that Individuals, men from all corners of, of Britain and in many cases in some towns, uh, the majority or near majority of young men in those towns uh, went to war and um, emerging from that. Was, was a need to, if they came home, if they came home, uh, to provide some some level of care uh, for them. So in, in general terms, the regional structure is is um, a good way, I think, to think about how we see the VA today and other, other uh, um, veterans' uh, resources as well. Um, so that, that's actually a very helpful way to look at it.
0: So were these, this is my last question on the subject, but I, I have to confess almost complete ignorance, were these convalescent homes funded charitably, or did they receive any funding from the state? Uh,
1: so, they were um, uh, run primarily by the voluntary sector, so they, they did a um, uh, uh, receive funding they were, were charitable entities so they would receive funding from um, local groups that would participate in some of their some of some of the events so if they had a, a, a library uh, or uh, um, a, a lawn party a fete if you will they they would rely upon local uh, citizens to um, raise money to benefit the the facility mm-hmm. um, at the same time, um, there was a, a measure of support um, not necessarily from the state but from the the British Red Cross order St. John's central office in London and that's a very good question and um, how, how much support they got uh, is really uh, mitigated by how generous the community was in supporting their particular uh, facility mm-hmm. um, so this is reflective in, in the archives by uh, you know buttons and badges and, and banners and posters that you'd see encouraging uh, local citizens to come out and and, and uh, support their hospital uh, or their, their convalescent facility. Uh, and I should say also that these many of these facilities were private homes that were turned over by citizens uh, oh, for – yeah, for for such use. So they were themselves charitable uh, structures uh, in, in many ways, and in fact, Galsworthy lent his home um, in London for for this very purpose. Yeah,
0: let's let's actually uh, transition now to Galsworthy and see mm-hmm. if we can make we can we can um, weave together these two threads. That is the history of. Uh, the care of soldiers and Galsworthy tell us a little bit about um, Galsworthy's life beginning I guess from the beginning he was a uh, he had a kind of privileged upbringing didn't he and then well, you can take it from there.
1: Yeah, well, he, he grew up in, in uh, the late 1860s when he was born and uh, did indeed have a very privileged upbringing. And this is uh, very much reflected in the the character of, of literature that he's become known for, uh, late Victorian or uh, Edwardian style literature. And um, in fact, it's also reflective uh, in his most famous piece, which is the the Foresight saga, the story of an upper middle class family and uh, um, three books and, and several uh, what what were really called interludes constitute the story of this uh, very privileged family and their their uh growth and relationships um and of course this itself has been made famous by the the two um, productions uh, in Britain one in the sixties and one uh, I believe it was in the nineties um and the th- that it really is itself uh, reflective of of galsworthy's life as i said so um What's curious is um, the fact that the writings that I reproduce in my book, uh, Galsworthy's writings, are are indeed uh, very unknown relative to the Foresight Saga. Mm And they're also very unknown relative to another uh, accolade that Galsworthy has become known for, which is the 1932 Nobel Prize in Literature, which he was awarded, uh, that was one year before he died in 1933. Um, So the book um, features a segment of his life that has been uh, referenced by many historians and discussed just briefly here and there, but I... Really, try to um, uh, reveal the the big story and, and the full story of his uh, engagement in World war one um, that that uh, uh, that others have just kind of referenced and, and kind of glossed over for a variety of reasons,
0: yeah he did make it his cause. He was a uh, tremendously popular writer, I mean he was very well known in uh, the uh the knots and the teens wasn 't he
1: yes that's correct yes uh he he in his lifetime he he published uh, twenty plus Novels, uh, you know, hundreds of short stories, plays. His plays were tremendously popular. Not all of them, I should say, but but many of them um, were, were among the most popular. And uh, um, he was, uh, as you say, a very, very popular individual. And uh, he – and I tell the story in the book – he really leveraged that popularity uh, for – the cause of uh, looking after men who had been returned home with uh, severe, uh, severe wounds, yeah. and um, just you know, to put it just way. to
0: put it in perspective, so people will understand, uh, w- w- was would he have been thought of in the same way as someone like George Bernard Shaw?
1: well in fact sure he he yeah. um, he was a, a contemporary of Shaw uh, alongside others um, h g wells uh, um, uh, john Buck, Buchan, um and um, the, this was a group of about two dozen writers who were the the elite of Britain, uh, the cream of the crop, and among the most um, uh, celebrated of their day. And, and these writers, uh, as I as I um, mentioned in the book, uh, came together at the request of the government uh, in September of 1914 to form what was called the War Propaganda Bureau uh they were all looked to for um, support in writing propaganda in, in support of the state and Galsworthy uh, joined them at the table at this meeting in London in, in early uh, September and so the book uh, reflects on that. Um, others have uh, told the story of the War Propaganda Bureau in, in much greater detail than I do. Uh, what, what I try to do in my book is show that Galsworthy believed in uh, supporting the nation going to war, but he abhorred war. He was sickened by the mere thought that the the nation was going to war, but he wanted to do um, something good. He wanted to make uh, make a contribution to the effort he was forty seven years old when the war uh, um, revealed itself and the war broke out and um, he was too old to fight he wasn 't particularly well he had a bad shoulder he had bad eyesight, and he felt very much um, disabled by his own physical condition, uh, a medical community that deemed him too old to fight. And so he, he looked inward to really the only ability and skill that he had to make a difference, which was his writing. So he joined the War Propaganda Bureau for a period of time and then seemed to break from it as the reality of the war set in as uh, the the increasing numbers of of wounded soldiers were returned home. The reality was 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 there, and he felt that mere propaganda was not um, good enough, so he turned his writing skills and his energy to writing in a way that could raise public awareness of the return of these men and um to raise some money for their their institutions, for hospitals that were, were uh, providing them care, but also in a very prophetic way, he uh, conveyed the uh, very um, uh, deep problem that the nation was encountering by, uh, return, by welcoming these men home and and really needing he needed to, to help people recognize that, we wanted to help people recognize that the, these men were – if they survived, um, they were going to be with the nation for decades to come. And the nation really needed to wake up and understand that part of the mission here uh, going to war was certainly you know winning the war but providing um, proper support for those who had done their bit. At the front, and we 're going to be with the nation for, for many decades, and so his later writings were very passionate um, articulations of the support that he hoped the nation could provide these men and uh, The book goes into great detail and, and describes how the disability that Galsworthy felt was uh, kind of a, um, a reflective in his passionate interest in disabled uh, men um, so that there was. In uh theory,
0: it was his own disability that uh, provided a kind of doorway for his interest in disabled Correct. soldiers and their rehabilitation. I find the entire yeah. process by which the government um, uh, co-opted, I guess I want to say, these uh, sort of, st- I want to call them stars of print, because mm-hmm. that's really what they were. They were yeah. sort of rock stars of their day, and it was the first generation of really kind of literary rock stars, I, I think. I-, I don't, you know, prior to the the... the the coming of mass print, which is really a late 19th century phenomenon, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that there were people like this. But I, I just, I, I'm of people like, uh, I don't know, Angelina Jolie or Bono, as in you, these people that are, you know, they're always, uh, it's, it's sort of a rite of passage now for stars to uh, go pick a cause and then right. contribute. And I think Galsworthy was obviously one of the, the first people to do this. I imagine that his motives were. Much purer, you'll pardon me for saying, than some people doing it today. But in any event, uh, what exactly did Galsworthy do? What was what were the nature of his activities in the benefit of these um, wounded soldiers?
1: So, so Galsworthy uh, initially um, uh, wrote. Uh, when he when he broke more or less from the war propaganda bureau, wrote uh, a few pieces for um, uh, hospitals um, in. Uh, In Britain, um, particularly the uh, Queen Mary's Hospital in uh, an area called Roehampton, which is south of London, and um, so his his initial work was largely, um, you know, in earnest writing for these institutions, and then um, he uh, had an opportunity, as I I share in the book, to uh, volunteer at a Red Cross, a French Red Cross hospital in uh, the south of France. Um, and took that opportunity with his wife um, toward the um, middle part of the war and um, he uh, traveled with his wife to to france um, to this hospital hospital Benevol, it was called where he was a masseur, and his wife was um, a, a linen um, a superintendent, uh, providing, taking care of all the, the linens in the institution. And from that experience, uh, wrote a, another set of um, fiction short stories about his experiences with those uh, disabled French soldiers. And uh, after this was a period of about three and a half, four months that he he spent his time in in France at this hospital, and then subsequently traveled to Lyon and then to Paris to visit several other institutions that were providing uh, various uh, uh, curative workshops and and other uh, so-called rehabilitation programs for disabled French soldiers, and this experience informed very much the writings that he uh, undertook and the work that he under voluntary work he undertook when he returned to Britain uh, within the, within a few weeks. So he was only overseas for about five months, and um, then he undertook at the request of the Ministry of Pensions the uh, editorship of a uh, Magazine called uh, *Reveille*, *Reveille*, um, and uh, brought together um, many of these literary uh, um, colleagues of his, um, many of whom you met, many of whom you've mentioned: uh, H. G. Wells, Arnold Bennett, Mayfield, uh, Buckin, Edith Wharton, uh, James, to um, create a, a magazine that was, um, in, an, in an earlier fashion, not particularly creative very, very um, uh, administrative in how it was communicating the needs of disabled soldiers. So Galsworthy put a creative spin on this through the help of, of many of his, his uh, literary uh, uh, friends and um, edited this magazine for uh, three, it only existed for three issues, so for about a year and a half or thereabouts. And this, uh, uh, this uh, editorship that he oversaw, um, uh, uh, connected also to um, his participation on the editorial committee of uh, another magazine, or rather short-lived publication, uh, on the int- for the interallied conference uh, conferences on the aftercare of disabled soldiers. So um, he he had these uh, these this series of of the series of participation in the cause of disabled soldiers from r- writing short pieces on his own to the voluntary work he did overseas, and then um, the work that he did at the request of the Ministry of Pensions. Work, as I say in the book, uh, as, I, as I share, ultimately he became quite disillusioned with.
0: Mm-hmm. Why did these publications – it doesn't seem they lasted very long. Was he I, – I, you'll pardon me for saying this, or maybe his relatives will pardon me for saying this. Was he a difficult man, or did, did he, Did he, as you say, just become disillusioned with the people he was working with?
1: Uh, i don 't believe based on everything i 've read and the historical record i 've i 've looked at that he was necessary necessarily difficult or difficult to work with um, and I say that because i 've read quite carefully the uh, the correspondence between galsworthy and um uh his literary colleagues and also administrators in the, in the ministry of pensions i think difficult uh he's quite creative i think he was quite Uh, innovative and how he wanted to approach the problem. I think he became difficult when the Ministry of Pensions uh, imposed censorship rules on the publication, uh, Reveille, um, that Galsworthy disagreed with because he really wanted to have a freer voice to convey the scope of the of the problems at hand and the gravity of the situation so i think he became reasonably difficult um at that point and and then he became disillusioned um but i think uh his intentions if you one would say pure uh they were Quite sincere in the sense that he wanted to dedicate, uh, he, he did dedicate his time and his energy and, and, and a great deal of money to to this cause. Now you're right; the publications did not have um, a, uh, a long uh, lifespan. They were in essence quite ephemeral, um, and therein lies kind of the latter part of my of my uh, contribution to this book, where I I talk about Galsworthy's uh, um, acknowledgement of the uh, ephemeral way in which the nation was grappling with these problems. Um, so there's a paradox there in, in many respects. Um, and then the latter part of the book addresses the fact that Galsworthy became so disillusioned um, at the uh, regulations that were being put upon him and arguably also disillusioned with the, um, the damage being wrought Uh, on the battlefield and being returned home, the the wounded men, that um, he, like many of his generation, became disillusioned with the war, and toward the end of the war and the years following, um, he um, thought little about the war. He wrote little about the war and wrote virtually nothing significant about that cause of supporting disabled soldiers that he was so passionate about during the war years. That's and not, that, that's, that's, again, the latter part of the story.
0: That's fascinating. He kind of blotted out of his life. Let's uh, talk a little bit about disillusionment and begin with the subject of censorship, which you mentioned. I, th- I think that... Uh, This is something that Americans uh, tend to forget, that is that censorship in this era was more or less pervasive, accepted, and um, most people thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, Mm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the regime of censorship that the British imposed um, during the war and what Galsworthy thought about it.
1: Sure. So um, the the censorship that Galsworthy uh, encountered was uh, uh, put upon him by... Uh, civil servants in the Ministry of Pensions, and they took issue with um, really the, the two things: uh, the the very graphic nature uh, with which some of the contributions in Galsworthy's publication um, uh, took up the issue of, of um, disability and disabled soldiers, and also statistically too, uh, there was uh, um, a an effort to. Um, uh, really um cloak or veil uh, what the true numbers of disabled soldiers were were uh were really the nation that was seeing and so Galsworthy got in the middle of this, and the correspondence that he had with um with the with the uh the civil servants um really reflects this and so um there there was um uh really a tit-for-tat period of time during his editorship where he really felt that um, the the right way to approach this was to be uh, rather frank and honest and and not uh, obscure the reality. Um, but the civil servants felt that uh, uh, in various ways um, there needs to be these greater controls on uh, on the publication. And so this is kind of ironic because when Galsworthy took up the publication in the first instance, as I share as in my book. Um, they wanted it to be a, a more, uh, uh, popular, uh, creative publication. He, he took it up from a gentleman named, uh, uh Lord Charnwood and the publication was pretty much a failure that was recognized uh, in, in various corners, so they wanted Galsworthy to to pick it up and, and run with it and so he had the freedom or the latitude initially, I believe uh, based on what i 've seen in the record. but then, as the war became uh, much more uh, um, damaging in all respects in in late seventeen eighteen um, the, the the tone and the approach of the government really really changed, and I think uh, Uh, Issue number three, which appeared in early 1919, um, was the end of that publication. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. Now, you say that these, well, some of Galsworthy's writings and some of the articles that appeared in Reveille uh, were deemed by the censors to be too graphic. I think it's important to understand what that means in 1915 or 16, because I don't think it's our conception of graphic
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. So the, the 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 there were no illustrations in the publication beyond uh, a couple of pen and ink sketches by uh, a few of Galli- uh, Galsworthy's um, uh, uh, literary um, colleagues. Um, but by graphic, there was um, uh, material that conveyed the really deep loss of. Young men to the nation, and um, i, I don 't have a copy of the publication yeah, you know, handy yeah, here but but the the um, uh, there, there were there was material there that conveyed such a significant loss that the 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 the, the, the um, the, the loss of this generation of men was something that was uh, too explicit, and uh, that was one thing that they took issue with. Um, the other really was um, the fact that um, the, um, uh, there was criticism of um, the ministry of pensions in their local committee structure to provide um, good service to disabled soldiers and their families, and Galsworthy and many of his writers wanted to uh, criticize that local pensions committee structure, and um, that was something that was not much appreciated at all, Uh, and I should also say there were writers representing the Ministry of Pensions that Galsworthy worked with uh, on this publication as well. But the um, the the voices of those who he brought to the to the table to contribute those the contributors I think were, were too in some ways um, uh, too critical and uh, I think that was uh, um, lurking for a period of time and became quite evident towards uh, the formation of the uh, at least the second issue of the magazine and certainly the third.
0: Uh, did he uh, argue with the censors? I mean, did he go visit them and say, "Look, you have to let me write this because it's true"? Or how did their how did their tête-à-tête uh, unfold?
1: Yes. Yeah. So it unfolded uh, through a series of letters that were written uh, for a period of time on a daily basis between Colsworthy and uh, one of the, the uh, civil servants uh, in the Ministry of Pensions. And uh, this series of letters um, really reveals that uh, for a concentrated period of time, um, that uh, there was disagreement with uh, what Galsworthy wanted to include in, in the publication. And uh, so again, the historical record is, is fully revealed through the this, this series of correspondence.
0: Uh-huh. And um, how, how, did, uh, how did the breakup actually occur when, when Galsworthy said, okay, enough, I'm done? Uh, did he re- sort of stomp off in a snit or did he just let the publication die?
1: Well that's uh, uh that's a very good question. Um he there were a few final letters written and uh uh there was there's one letter that r- reveals that uh he became so disillusioned he did Essentially, I guess you'd say, stop off. <laughs> um, he let the publication die with a great deal of regret because the historical record reveals, and this is correspondence uh, in part between uh, Galsworthy and his wife and uh, some of their friends, that it was very unfortunate that this had to happen and that a publication with so much. Uh, promise and and uh, so many wonderful contributors uh, for the cause um, really didn 't work out so um, that's that was the end of of reveille mm-hmm. and uh, um, portions of uh, that publication, uh, Galsworthy's essays and his contributions to the the three issues, are reprinted in my book alongside. Uh, so those are the non. That's in the nonfiction part. Uh, the book is, uh, as I said, also contains some of the fiction that he wrote in France that um, informed, as I mentioned, uh, his. Uh, thoughts and motivation toward, uh, editing Reveille.
0: Mm-hmm. Now after Reveille, there's another publication or do I have that backwards? Uh,
1: well, Reveille, uh, was kind of the second generation of, um, the publication that started out with, um, uh, under the editorship of, of Lord Charmwood that was called recall to life. So that was a failure. that ran for three issues as well. Uh, Reveille, uh, uh, then was kind of resurrected from the ashes of recalled to life, and then there was um, another publication that Galsworthy uh, did not uh, contribute to, but he was on the editorial board of, and that is the the official publication of uh, the interallied conferences on the aftercare of uh, disabled men. So that that was a very short-lived publication. So that was published in France, uh, and Galsworthy's name appeared at the, um, on the masthead of that Um, and uh, but it it only exists I think for a few a few issues itself and it was a more technical uh, scientific uh, medical journal as opposed to uh, a creative one
0: Yeah, he doesn't give up his advocacy though on behalf of wounded soldiers uh, after reveille he he continues to participate what does he do exactly
1: so oh, uh in nineteen twenty one he wrote a short piece uh, for uh, the disabled society on uh for a handbook um, for the disabled and um uh, kind of an introduction if you will to this resource book for disabled veterans and i think it's six to nine paragraphs uh, i i didn't uh include it in my book uh it, it's it's a, a coda to a significant coda to all the other material that he wrote, the the, uh, uh, the the numerous essays that are included, and the reason why it's significant is that it's so short, and it's so lifeless in many ways, and that the passion with which he wrote during the war, and combined with the the energy that he dedicated, the time he dedicated to the cause, um, he he it's not it's not evident in the in the 1921 the short 1921 piece um and that's significant there's an absence there of what was very present during the the war years so uh, that's what he did uh in 1921 um he uh, between 1923 and 1924, uh, began or published uh, um, his collected works. What was called uh, the Maniton collection of his of his works, uh, a 20-some odd volume uh, collection. <laughs> um, you know, volume 17 is uh, contains the the wartime material, and there uh, is a significant absence of. Uh, nearly every one of the pieces he wrote, uh, in support of disabled soldiers. So there's one or two pieces there that, um, that, um, Kind of reference it, but there's no no highlight of it in addition to the fact that the introduction to that volume seventeen Galsworthy essentially admits that you know this was uh, a, a tough period, and uh, i'm reproducing here what I think is is important, so indirectly he's saying um, you know everything else was not necessarily. Imp- was not important, was not necessarily important, and he, in my point of view, he kind of blocks it out and um, uh, presents collected works based on how he felt they ought to be presented. Now, certainly, there's a literary quality dimension to this, and I, I don't deny that, but isn't it significant that a famous author who uh, know, published, you know, as I said, 20-some-odd volumes and hundreds of essays and plays and... Um, just kind of forgets conveniently in his collected works that there was a chapter of his life for four years that he pursued this cause. And I think that's kind of curious. So I I, uh, describe that.
0: It's not unusual in the sense that uh, anyone who studies Russian history, as I have, Mm -hmm. uh, knows that anything called the complete collected works of X isn't complete. It just right. goes Absolutely. without saying. It is not complete. Absolutely, um, There is something not in there that the author didn't like. And I think, you know, this tendency to want to remake our past in service of the present is, is pervasive in, in all people, I think. But it is very interesting in the case of someone like Galsworthy. Did people remember his uh, wartime service in this in, the, in, the, in this cause? Or was it more or less forgotten during his life?
1: Uh, it was more or less forgotten during his life. Um, the, uh, the thing that he's really most known for, aside from the, the Nobel Prize, is really the Foresight Saga, and understandably so, I guess, if you if you like the Foresight Saga. Um, the, uh, the historical record shows that um, uh, even in, in his Private papers. Uh, he didn't talk about this. Uh, there was little acknowledgement of it. Uh, when he did receive the prize, the Nobel Prize, he, he was not present because he was too ill to to be physically um, uh, in uh, in Sweden for the for the. Um, um, for the uh, award uh, ceremony um, there was recognition that he was a, a real humanitarian but not any specific recognition of his work for uh, disabled soldiers that might be asking too much that there, that there may have been but but uh, he was known as a humanitarian but, but it, it's been a footnote really in, in history and in in uh, uh, modern historical scholarship uh, several uh, historians, uh, most notably uh, Seth Coven um, wrote a wonderful piece in I think it was the 1994 volume uh, of um, the American Struggle Review. A wonderful piece on disabled uh, soldiers and disabled children in World War One, and that was really the first piece that recognized Galsworthy in a way that I try. To telescope significantly, in in my book, and other historians of World War One, social cultural historians have uh, recognized causeworthy vis-a-vis disabled soldiers in you know, a sentence or a paragraph, but not telling the full story that I that I attempt to tell in, in my book.
0: Mm-hmm. Now he wrote a lot after the war. Yeah, a very productive period for him. Uh, even yeah. though he did die uh, young, I guess we would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the question that I suppose everybody asks you, but it has to be asked, what impact did his wartime experience and advocacy have on his later writings?
1: Uh, That's a difficult question. Um, It didn't have much. Um, I think it, it, from a literary perspective, it, it was kind of the last flourish of his creativity in in many ways Um, it certainly the themes uh, of this didn't um, percolate up in in later works Um, but I think it did have a significant impact in the sense that his war experience had a significant impact in that it it really demoralized him for the rest of his life so although he was productive um, his um, his energy was not as it was before the war. His creativity was not as it was before, and literary tastes had changed, so that modernism, as it had emerged um, became much more um, defining of the the literary um, um, uh, landscape and modern taste so um, if you will, so yeah. Galsworthy was kind of thrown out with the rest of the bunch. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, even before the war, Virginia Woolf headed in for Galsworthy, and I talked yeah, about this. Yeah,
0: I was going to say you yeah. have some really what we would call money quotes from Virginia Woolf, right? Who really doesn't sound like a very nice person at all? Right? No, that's not just at all. my impression. Not at all. She's yeah, not no. somebody I'd really want to sit down and have coffee with. Talk about an yeah. acid pen! Yeah, it she might, has it in for right. Galsworthy in a big way.
1: Yes, yes, she 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 does. Uh, she did. She wrote a piece called uh, "Mr. Bennett and Mr. Brown," uh, in which she just. Uh, Uh, takes Galsworthy apart alongside many of his uh, colleagues who were rooted in that late Victorian Edwardian sentimentalist style. Uh, And she says something like, uh, you know, the novels don't really do anything except, you know, provide some you know detailed account of people's personal lives and they're they're not reflective of the realities that we face you know in in this age and so yes she had it in for him um, and so from a, a literary perspective i i guess i don't take issue with her and I'm, again i'm a historian I am not, not a literary scholar i wrote this book with Wolf's <laughs> criticisms you know in mind but really felt that Goldsworthy uh, deserved some resurrection, if you will, uh, in light of what he tried to achieve um, during this very difficult period for for Britain and for himself, too, um, as I describe in the book. So I, I, I uh, hope that people will, uh, Wolf's criticisms notwithstanding, will, will at least uh, read Galsworthy's work and appreciate the historical context, a cultural context that I try to bring to it uh, in, uh, in my piece. Um, well, I think
0: you, I think you, you achieve uh, all of that and more. And just bringing to light the, this very odd fact that uh, Galsworthy had had a significant amount of experience, not directly at the front, but at least with the war and that he had written pretty extensively and that he had worked in various semi-official capacities during the war for disabled soldiers, but then it simply disappears from his writings is, right. is, it, is a significant thing. That is what I think the postmodernists call the present absence. Um, right. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, you know Hemingway went to war and he came back and he wrote about war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Galsworthy sort of went to war and he came back and he wrote about the Forsyths. Mm-hmm. you know it's a exactly. very it's a very different thing and uh, yes. it yes. does speak to his um, i guess it speaks to his mentality his ability to block these things out i you know it is just it's just very curious it's one of these things that one wants to speculate endlessly about but apparently he doesn't he didn't write a autobiography did he
1: uh no no uh there was uh a collection in the in the early 30s, mid-30s rather, a collection of his papers and his correspondence by a long-time colleague, uh, and there were uh, several biographies uh, of him by uh, those who were very close to him, and um, even those don't reveal, alongside, of course, Galsworthy's original papers, which I've, I've consulted, uh, at least in one archive, there is no reflection upon the war period um, beyond uh, correspondence. And I, I, I end my my critique uh, in the book with this, where he, he says that the war uh, destroyed, he said, I don't know what to call it, a whole lot of faith in me. Uh, and that was kind of the poignant moment in his correspondence, uh, the, the date of which I, I need to look up uh, in my own book, <laughs> yeah, uh, where he, where he says, you know, the the war the war ruined me it ruined my creativity it, it destroyed my energy and I think that's kind of the the poignant the real pivotal point in in his life where he recognizes this uh, um, uh, communicates this to a close colleague of his mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. so where where are uh, Goldsworthy's papers now who has them
1: so there are, there are two, uh, big collections of Galsworthy's papers. One is at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, the other collection is held by, uh, Steve Forbes, uh, the businessman, uh, and that was the collection that I relied upon, uh, very heavily, uh, in my research. And as I state uh, at the outset of my my book, um, I'm very much indebted to uh, Mr. Forbes for uh, providing me the access to that collection, uh, uh, which is again in his private private hands.
0: Why you have to? I, you know, again, I, I did note that. Why does Steve Forbes have uh, many of the papers of John Galsworthy?
1: So the Forbes family, for uh, several generations, um, has had a tremendous interest in the arts um, and and literature, and so uh, that generally is the reason why uh, they they hold that collection. Uh, it was purchased from uh, Christie's, and um, uh, that's that's. Generally, the, the reason why for them. thats what I say. Well, I I <laughs> that's agree. <money> well spent. <laughs> yeah, I I agree, and and the access was was uh, much appreciated, and uh, um, the the significant thing is is that had that collection not been purchased, uh, I don't know where it. Would have gone. It could have gone to the University of Birmingham. I don't know the story behind that, and I, I probably should. But uh, there's something to be said for those who appreciate history and art, uh, who have the means to collect it, and who have the, the generosity to make it available to, uh, to uh, scholars like myself. So yeah, I, that's not, I, not lost on me. In, in I, couldn't, any
0: I couldn't agree more with that, and kudos to, to Mr. Forbes and his family, because anything that could be done to preserve these things is, is 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 the most excellent thing. I don't care whether it's in private or public hands, yes. as long yes. as they are preserved. That yes. is, uh, from the historical point of view, all I really care about. Yes. Yes. and and so. in fact,
1: they 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 are preserved very very well uh, in his home in, in London uh, in Battersea, where I went, and they're they're done so and very much in close cooperation, as I understand, with the, the Fine Arts Society. So uh, it's done in a, in a really professional way, and uh, they're wonderfully cataloged, and um, they are tremendously Revealing in the way that I, I try to uh, reveal myself in, in this book.
0: That's terrific. And for those people who are interested in seeing the ones at Birmingham, they're obviously open. But for other people who want to see them in the Forbes collection, do you just simply contact the Forbes the Forbes uh, Trust or something like that? Or?
1: So the the Forbes uh, uh, Forbes has an office in in New York, and if someone uh, wanted to consult. The Papers for uh research purposes uh that would be the the proper avenue yeah. to to go through and the university of birmingham um, uh, their their collections uh, um, I just think that's uh, accessible through the through the internet and you can make an appointment there as well now i, I should say i admittedly I did not go to Birmingham yeah. um, and that was largely due to the the means that i didn't have to get over there <laughs> on that occasion to make that research trip so I am conscious of that and um, uh but that's uh, uh Maybe a a related project I can undertake. I have been back in touch with Birmingham in recent months Uh for uh, a related project. And and, Uh um, so uh, perhaps uh, I should do a volume two or something.
0: Yeah, I think you probably should. So uh, on the topic of uh, related projects, we've taken up a lot of your time, Jeff. And uh, we would be interested, though, before we close the interview to hear what that related or next project is.
1: So I'm interested in uh, undertaking a, a cultural study uh, slash history of medicine study of the prisoner of war experience in Britain during World War One. Um, one significant individual who was a uh, prisoner of war happens to be happened to be Galsworthy's nephew, and uh, his life story is something that's particularly interesting to me. Not merely because it intersects with Galsworthy's but for other reasons related to this gentleman's uh, creativity. He was a poet and an artist, quite a good one, I think. And the the record that he left, which is quite fragmented, um, Birmingham has some of his material, but it's elsewhere that I've tracked down, uh, reveals uh, a story, a part of the story of the Prisoner of War experience that I'm interested in examining uh, from a psychological uh, perspective and mm-hmm. that fits That type of study, uh, as it relates to other figures as well, fits with my interest in cultural history of Mm -hmm. the Great War and history of medicine.
0: Mm -hmm. So you will – I happen to know that you will uh, be working your day job, writing that book, and taking care of a uh – A new child as well. Yes,
1: so I became. So you're not
0: busy uh, at all. We can drop. No, not at all.
1: Not at all. Became a father for the second time six weeks ago, and two beautiful girls at home with my wife. So yes, uh, got my hands full, but pleasantly so. Well, congratulations (laughs) on all. Thank you. Congratulations
0: on the book. I really enjoyed reading it. I should tell our listeners that we have been talking to Jeffrey Resnick about his book, John Galsworthy and the Disabled Soldiers of the Great War. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you very much for being on the show. We really appreciated it.
1: Thank you, Marshall, and, and thanks again for your interest in the book. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Jeff Resnick about his new book, John Galsworthy and the Disabled Soldiers of the Great War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.